Windsor, Windsor. Ascot, Ascot. Maidenhead, Maidenhead. Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham, Wokingham. Henley. Henley, Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. It's turning pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be joined by Tilly Brogan for Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And we're exploring the inspirational literary world for James Bond 007. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Welcome to you all. Uh, Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with the news from the world of books. We've got bestsellers, new releases, and providing you with some great recommendations of books to read. So thank you for joining us today. Indeed, thank you. We've got a packed show coming up as always. Tilly Brogan will be joining us for her latest book in Tilly's Fiction Addiction to discuss The Brilliant Death by A.R. Capetta. And we're joining in the hype surrounding the latest James Bond movie and exploring the books that inspired Ian Fleming together with our favourite Bond books. And as always, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news to share with you. And if you've forgotten already, you're listening to uh, Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley and beyond. And don't forget... As ever, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you'd like to tell us about or any book recommendations or you're involved in a book club or you're indeed an author, we would like you to get in touch. And you can get in touch with me on julian at river.radio with any of your news and comments or indeed any comments that you may have about about the programme. And we'd like to hear from you. Excellent. So let's begin with that roundup of the interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. And I've got to say, we've got the Richard and Judy Book Club selection for the autumn that's just been announced that we want to share with you because they're all guaranteed to be absolute gems. They are indeed, Heather. They are. And, and, and here they are. I'm kicking off with A Beautiful Spy by Rachel Hoare. This is published by Simon Schuster. And it's inspired by a true story of a British spy, Olga Gray, during the 1930s. There you are. We've started our 007 theme straight off. Indeed we have. <laughs> uh, the next recommendation in the Richard and Judy Book Club is Sugar by Bernice L. McFarland. Fadden, published by Vintage Classics. Now, this was written several decades ago, and it's now being it's now been refound and republished. And it tells a poignant tale set in America's deep south in the nineteen fifties. Mm, all right, and then C.J. Tudor brings a sense of gothic horror and superstition to the book club with her novel *The Burning Girls*, which is published by Penguin. And next up, and new to the book club, is Simon Scarrow. So that's interesting. He's new to the book mm-hmm. club because he's fabulous. I've been right, reading. yeah. Mm. Uh, it is, it is, it is, it is but then again, it's like anything, you know. 
you know, people's come to uh, authors come to different people's attention at different times. They absolutely, absolutely. That's a very good point. So Simon Scarrow has just been chosen with his latest novel, Blackout, published by Headline, and this is an old-fashioned murder mystery with a fantastic twist set in December 1939 in Germany, as the detective is under pressure to solve the murder of a young woman, but is distrusted by his superiors for his failure to join the Nazi Party. Oh, oh, interesting. Almost a bit like um, um, oh, um, Care's novels. Um, Philip Care, yes. Philip Care, yes. yes. Yeah, wow, that would be really atmospheric. I'll, yeah. I'll look forward to reading that. Then the penultimate title in this season's club is is a returning author, Jane Jane Harper, and her book is The Survivors, published by Little Brown. Now, it's a murder mystery, but it's also a chronicle of youth, grief and growing up. And finally, The Last House on Needless Street, published by Profile and uh, written by Catriona Ward, which is the story of a murderer, a stolen child and revenge. And that mm. promises to be a thrilling read. Mm, it does indeed. Now, coming away from all the thrills and spills, um, but the lovers of Downton Abbey can get a glimpse behind the doors or the closed doors of its home, Highclere Castle, which is in Hampshire, because its Chatelaine, Lady Carnarvon, has written a book which is just out and it's called Seasons at Highclere. Now, it includes information from uh, the castle archives. Uh, It also includes pictures of secret gardens and also uh, of Georgian architecture. But also, which is really nice, it it has seasonal recipes, uh, one including a heritage tomato tart. Um, And since uh, 2019, six series and one Downton Abbey film have been shot at Highclere Castle. And there is a second film uh, in production. It's due to be released in March next Next year. Oh, no, I beg your pardon. Yes, 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 next year, 2020. Of course, we're in 2021, aren't we? I'm afraid we are, yes. 2020 (laughs) just went in a blur. It did. (laughs) So we often think about um, animals that are becoming extinct, but I was fascinated to realise they're being written out of novels too. So rich research has been conducted in Germany, which searched 60,000 Western works of fiction between 1705 and um, 1969. And they checked for the names of all kinds of living things. And the analysis highlighted that the frequency, the density and the variety of labels for animals and plants rose until the mid 19th century and then has declined steadily. Hmm. So 1835 seems to be the peak, but then since then there's been a tendency to use less specific terms. So instead of describing an oak, we now say a tree. Right. um, So we were talking about um, the junior Oxford Dictionary of um, the Oxford Dictionary taking words out Mm. from our natural world. Well, it just appears that we're being a bit slovenly in terms of our descriptions in, in books, and that's obviously one of the reasons why children aren't uh, knowledgeable about uh, mm. the plant world and the animal I mean, it, world. It is a shame, isn't it? Because I, I remember reading some books and, then, and somebody, the author would be distri- dis- describing plane trees. I thought, oh gosh, what's a plane tree? Whereas, in fact, you would just say, which is not, of course, P-L-A-I-N, it's the... Um, um, P-L-A-N-E. Uh, P-L-A-N-E. But, you know, then that prompts you to, oh, well, what's that? I don't know what that is. I'll go and look for it. But yeah. if you just said oh, it, it was a grove of trees, yes. you know, I probably wouldn't even use the word grove either. I probably would say a line of trees. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
Well, that's really interesting. <laughs> it well. is. It is. But anyway, origin stories are, are all the rage at the moment. Um, uh, for example, you only need it uh, to look at Cruella de Vil, who recently has been given um, an extensive background by Disney. Uh, and, it, and it now seems that Beano um, is about has, about to reveal the origin of one of its own, and that of Dennis the Menace and his red and black stripy jumper. Excellent. I remember <laughs> Dennis the Menace. I do, too. I do. And Nasha, his dog. Um, Dennis uh, the Menace made his first appearance in the pages of Beano, can you believe this, on the 17th of March, 1951. Wow. Wearing a shirt and tie. No, I cannot believe that. Yeah, I, I know, exactly. Yeah, a shirt and tie. And a month later, the 10-year-old hero was clad in his iconic striped jumper which was originally portrayed in black and white color was added later um not too long afterwards and the red and black tones were chosen because very interesting they happened to be the strongest colors in ink available to the printer in the 1950s very pragmatic (laughs) absolutely yeah so it could have been you know anything it could have been yellow and blue if if, if it was a different time now to celebrate this uh, 70th anniversary of Beano's longest running character a new comic strip is about to be unveiled uh, about the jumper secret history now it's called the epic yarn of awesomeness and it will reveal that the jumper once belonged to dennis's great ancestor also called dennis and it was knitted by his gran a friendly witch from a spider's wool infused with magical potions and using her magical wands as knitting needles. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And finally, the shortlist for the Business Book of the Year Award has just been announced, and they've got some great books, ranging from Empire of Pain, which is all about the Sackler family and the global (laughs) epidemic of opioid addiction, Uh, the business challenge of global warming in the new climate war, and finally, the aristocracy of talent about meritocracy and the importance of competition, um, according to talent. Mm. This is River Radio, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. And if business is your thing, listen to Let's Talk Business on River Radio between 1 and 2 on Wednesday, just after this show. And it's um, this week, we've got Sarah Charlesworth from the Berkshire Group Growth Hub, who will be dis- discussing some of the business challenges faced at the moment, together with some of the free support, support available out there to businesses within the Thames Valley. So do listen in. Yes, you should. So coming up on Turning Pages, we'll be exploring the books that are the literary ancestors of James Bond and the inspiration for Ian Fleming. But first, we're joined by our regular contributor, Tilly Brogan, to discuss her latest fiction addiction, which this week is The Brilliant Death by American author A.R. Capetta. Before we listen to what Tilly has to say about the book, let's listen to a little from the beginning of the novel, read to us by Mike Byrne. When I was a little girl, I thought my father was the king of Venalia. A family lived in a round wall castle that seemed to grow from the mountainside. Father's favourite chair had been carved out of a black walnut tree. When I squinted long enough, it became a throne. The first time I saw him kill someone, it made perfect sense. A king had to protect his family and his mountains. I shouldn't have been out of bed that winter night, but I travelled to the down to the kitchens, feet soft brushstrokes on cold stone, and stole a glass of milk. When I turned to leave by the back stairs, two men blocked my path. Father stood on the lowest step with his arms fastened round a stranger's neck. Snow clumped wetly on the man's shoulders. I didn't dare move closer. 
If I'd been in the white nightgown, father would have seen me by now, but the de Sangro family wore red, so everything I owned was a deep shade that turned black in the moonlight. I watched as cold bees slicked the outside of my glass, a pretty thing that had been hand-blown in the city of Amalia. Father's grip tightened on the man's neck while my grip weakened. Father grabbed a knife from his sleeve and stabbed the man's side. I dropped the glass. The moment became a small eternity, giving me time to fear what came next. Father's anger, my punishment. I closed my eyes tight, twisting the story in the new direction. The glass will dissolve into a pile of sugar. The milk will turn into a white, white moth and fly away. When I opened my eyes, the snow light coming through the window caught on a pair of wings, pale wings. A moth fluttered, gone before I could be sure what I'd seen. I pushed one toe past the hem of my nightgown. It found no shards of glass. I knelt, licked my fingertip and touched it to the stone. It came back gritty with crystals. I brought them to my tongue. Sweet, I gasped. Father turned toward me, finished with his business. His brown eyes held only torchlight. Wait here, Teodora, he said, shifting the dead man's weight against his shoulder. Father opened the heavy door and disappeared into the kitchen gardens for a long mire of a minute. I burned to ask about magic, but I knew what he would say. A striga is an old woman who's listened to too many stories. When he came back to the doorway, his shirt blotched with damp, I lit on a new question. I had to speak quickly before my boldness faded into the shadows. Was it your fate to kill that man? I was only Niccolo di Sangro's second daughter and had no right to ask. I thought he would wave his hand vaguely, sending me back to bed. Father sat down at the coarse wooden table and patted the chair next to his. That's Benny Armour's seat, I whispered, as if my older brother asleep in the North Hall might be able to hear us from inside his dreams. We won't tell anyone, will we? he asked. I shook my head sat down. My feet swung lightly, inches from the floor. Father reached into his sleeve and withdrew the knife. As he placed it on the table, I drank every detail. A spiral handle, a swerving crossbar, a long, thin blade that looked harmless until my eyes reached the point. I couldn't find a single drop of blood. Father must have stabbed the snow outside to clean it. The knife was sharp. The knife was lovely. I could see both of those trues twisted together. Father marked my reaction. You don't reach for it, but you don't shy away. He sounded pleased, but then his eyes pinched. Why are you downstairs? So he had not seen the glass, the milk, the magic. I was thirsty. I wondered how Father White Moth had flown. Father nudged the knife toward me. It lifted easily, much lighter than I had expected. You truly aren't afraid, are you? he asked. What is there to be afraid of? He chuckled, the sound as heavy as wet snow. Well, I was younger than you when I learned what it means to be a disangro. Father cupped his hands around mine like he was teaching me to pray. He asked me if it was my fate to kill that man. His eyes went dim. Family is fate.
Tilly, you've chosen The Brilliant Death by A.R. Capetta this week. I've seen it described as a fast-paced joyride of a novel containing magic, intrigue and a gender-fluid love story. How does that feel as a description? I would say that's pretty accurate. In one sentence, maybe say a 19th century Italian mafia story with magical shapeshifters, a really great queer romance and yeah, an unashamed critique of the gender binary for sure. I love that mafia element. So so tell me a little bit more. Give me an idea of the summary of the book. So the book is about the main characters called Teodora. So when Teodora's father is poisoned by the capo, who is the new leader of the land, uh, Teo has to represent her family in a meeting at the capital. But there's one issue because girls can't be heads of families. There's five strong Italian families that Teo is a part of. So with the help of Cielo, who is a magical being called Estrega, who can shift between genders. Teo has to go down to the capital and rescue her father in place of her brother. And so she puts herself forward as the head of the family. So the whole thing is her journey from the castle to the capital and back again. She goes to rescue her father, but at the same time, she finds out more about herself because she is also a Strega, like Cielo, so like a magical being. And these Strega are ruthlessly hunted across the land. That's another secret she has to keep. I understand that uh, gender bias is quite an important part of the book. Tell me more about that. Yeah, because heads of the family have to be, not even the firstborn, but just have to be a male. Teo doesn't agree with that. And Teo wants to obviously represent the family herself. Quite right, yes. Yeah, quite right too. So she uses her powers to shift into her brother to represent her family down in the capital to save her father. And it's really interesting because the characters treat her differently when she's Teodora, when she's the daughter, and when she is in her brother's place. So it's a really nice look at the differences between men and women. It's like set in the 19th century. That's really interesting because things have changed now. Things are a lot more equal now, but it's really interesting to see the differences back there and then and how gender played such a big part and how she does get treated differently by different people when she's in these different bodies. I think that's a really interesting question for today, actually, how we treat boys and girls differently. Uh, it's, it's still it's still prevalent today. When you go in at Christmas shops and everything for girls is pink and you think nothing oh, has like changed. new baby clothes. Yes. <laughs> everything is pink and blue, yeah, for sure. Exactly. So tell me about the characters. Is there any particular standout characters for you? So I really love the main love interest, Cielo. So they're arrogant but charming. And they remind me a lot of Howl from Howl's Moving Castle, which is a Studio Ghibli movie, but it's also an amazing one book that I'm sure I will speak about at some point. So they're just like a sexy know-it-all who is as annoying as they are clever, but it's just all the more charming. I think they're just a great, great love interest for sure. And obviously Tao, the protagonist, I also really love. So she's strong-willed, but she's really tactical and she backs her family no matter what. And I mean, that's the reason she was in this mess in the first place, because she didn't take the idea that it had to be a man to represent her family. And she was, no, I'm going to do it myself. Her special power as one of these uh, magical beings, as a Strega, she can also turn men that annoy her into inanimate objects. So like um, power. Yeah, great power. So like clocks and jewellery boxes. Um, That's a really, really funny sideline of the story. One we wish we could all have, I think. I think so. And then once they've been turned into a jewellery box, how long do they stay there for? Oh, forever, forever. But there is a there is a plot twist in the book involving this magic and tale. Let's just say that they don't stay as that for as long as they should. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) That sounds great fun.
It is, it's great. I love the fact it's a mafia book. And I think set in Italy, because Italy is so romantic, isn't it? And a medieval in a way. So tell me about this setting, how that inspired the story. I think the setting is just so believable. And I've only been to Italy a few times, but they have um, the different castles of the five um, important families. And then they have the journey from the castle to the capital, then the capital itself. And they go past like vineyards and mountains and you can really picture Italy. And I think it's just great. And you can tell that it is Italian-esque, the novel in its essence, which I think is amazing because I read lots of books that are set in fantasy worlds. So it's nice to read a fantasy book that's set in not necessarily a real country, but pretty much reality. I think that was really interesting. And it allowed you to travel on your holidays without going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, definitely cheaper than a plane ticket just to read it and be transported to Italy. (laughs) Fantastic. So what's the relevance behind the title A Brilliant Death? So The Brilliant Death is the way that the Strega, so these magical beings, obtain magic. So Strega can increase their power by killing another Strega. So when a Strega kills a Strega, their magic gift passes on to the one that killed them. So a big part of the story is Teo finding out about herself, both in terms of who she is as the daughter of one of these families and also how she got her power. So that's a big plot point is finding out who died and who gave her this Strega power. I won't give away the answer, but it happens in the latter half of the book. And it is a huge plot twist that I did not see coming at all. Brilliant. Fantastic. So I've seen the book described as queer historical mafia fantasy. So what would you think are the main themes or tropes of the book? I think definitely a genderqueer gem with gender fluid characters which is really important but I think AR Capetta has done that so well it's not forced it's so natural it's just great Um, but it's a really interesting critique of the gender binary as well which I think it's weird because it's you know it's still a fantasy book so it's not explicitly a critique but just the events and the way that Teo feels when she's in different bodies it really makes you think about the way that gender plays in society I'd say that the family is like a raised to be ruthless family that's very very Italian so that's great there's a big like family trope there shape-shifting magic there's like amazing fantasy world building and I think the love story between Teo and Cielo is like us against the world vibes which is very very good That's great, because I do think that novels are all about allowing us to explore different ideas in a safe space. That's why I love YA books, because I think it brings together all these adult themes, um, society, dystopia, laws, gender, um, queer identity, racism. But but these authors, they do them in these more accessible formats. And it just makes you think about things. They're engaging and you just think about different issues that you wouldn't necessarily think about when you picked up a YA book. I think they're a great, great way to get into all this. Yeah. Now, YA books are normally done in big series. Is is this part of a series? It's a duology. Um, I haven't yet read the second one. It is on the top of my list. So I need oh. to read the second one um, because there is a big um, cliffhanger at the end of this. And I think the second one follows um, Cielo and Teo as well, trying to resolve this cliffhanger. But I'd say it's it's a pretty average sized book. I was really surprised at how quickly I got into it because mostly I read these huge series like Shadowhunters, Throne of Glass, that are five to eight books long. And, you know, obviously huge world building, but I think they've done an amazing job at building this world in such little space. I think they've done a great job. That's a real skill, isn't it? To allow you to read a book and straight away you're 
in the, yeah, for sure. the environment. <laughs> what surprised you the most when you were reflecting back on this book? I think just how funny it was. I didn't expect it to be that funny. It was definitely a laugh out loud book. I think it was a perfect mix between action and jokes as well. Definitely the humour and there was enough action, but also the, the plot and um, the scenery and the characters. I think everything was just so well done. And I was just surprised how much I loved it because I feel like it's not a very spoken about book, but it should be because it's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, well, I was surprised at how much of a gem it was. That's a great way to finish because there are loads of books out there that are really waiting to be explored and found so this mm -hmm. is obviously one a hidden a hidden gem to bring to yes. the forefront so brilliant death by ar capetta thank you very yes. much and what do you have coming up next i'm going to do the song of achilles by madeline miller next time so fantastic a book that actually made me cry and i don't cry a lot of things that book did tear my soul apart so i definitely need to share that one with you guys <laughs> that is absolutely perfect we're really looking forward to that because <laughs> madeline miller we've mentioned it before on the program bloomsbury have just done a 10-year anniversary hardback they have and they, they've changed the cover yeah and i have the old cover and i kind of want to buy the new cover as well but i don't know if my bank account will allow that but... well we really look forward to that next time thank yes, you very, thank you very much, much. <laughs> So after a six-year wait, James Bond is out and about again, not only single-handedly saving Western civilization, but also the cinema industry itself, if ticket sales are anything to go by. We all love a bit of James Bond, don't we? And I was in... Oh, sorry. <laughs> had another burst of music. Yeah, we did indeed, yeah. So I was interested in exploring the inspiration behind Ian Fleming's creation. So uh, Simon Winder has written this great book called The Man Who Saved Britain. And he sees sort of James Bond as something, well, I think a little bit we should be ashamed of enjoying. Really? And the book's yeah. hilar it's a hilarious blend of cultural history, biography and memoir and looking at the legacy of 007. And it's a, so it's a great book, not only for James Bond fans, but also for those who are not, because sometimes it can be a little bit cruel about uh, those who wholeheartedly support James Bond. And I think the thing about 007 is that no matter how hard you try to want to dismiss him and no matter how vigorously you point out how... The plots are sort of ridiculous and a little bit adolescent and politically incorrect. I think deep down, there's a little kid in all of us who secretly wants to be Bond. Um, I know there is with me. Um, so here's a little reading first of him, of James Bond cashing in on the casino winnings from Fleming's first book, which is Casino Royale. Casino Royale by Ian Fleming. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes unbearable and the senses awake and revolt from it. James Bond suddenly knew that he was tired. He always knew when his body or his mind had had enough, and he always acted on the knowledge. This helped him to avoid staleness and the sensual bluntness that breeds mistakes. 
He shifted himself unobtrusively away from the roulette he had been playing and went to stand for a moment at the brass rail which surrounded, breast high, the top table in the salle privée. Les Chiffres were still playing and still apparently winning. There was an untidy pile of flecked hundred mil plucks in front of him. In the shadow of his thick left arm there nestled a discreet stack of the big yellow ones worth half a million francs each. Bond watched the curious, impressive profile for a time, and then he shrugged his shoulders to lighten his thoughts and moved away. The barrier surrounding the case comes as high as your chin, and the caissier, who is generally nothing more than a minor bank clerk, sits on a stool and dips into his piles of notes and plaques. These are ranged on shelves. They are on a level, behind the protecting barrier, with your groin. The KCA has a cosh and a gun to protect him and to heave over the barrier and steal some notes and then vault back and get out of the casino through the passages and doors would be impossible. And the KCAs generally work in pairs. Bond reflected on the problem as he collected the sheaf of 100,000 and then the sheaves of 10,000 franc notes. With another part of his mind, he had a vision of tomorrow's regular morning meeting of the casino committee. Monsieur Le Chiffre made two million. He played his usual game. Miss Fairchild made a million in an hour, then left. As she executed three bancos of Monsieur Le Chiffre within the hour, and then left. She played with coolness. Monsieur Le Vicomte de Villarin made one million two at roulette. He was playing the maximum of the first and last dozens. He was lucky. Then the Englishman, Mr. Bond, increased his winnings to exactly three million over two days. He was playing a progressive system on red at table five. Duclos, the chef de partie, has the details. It seems that he is persevering and is playing in maximum. He has luck. His nerves seem good. On the soiree, the chemin de fer won X, the baccarat won Y, and the roulette won Z. The bull, which was a game badly frequented, still makes its expenses. Merci, Monsieur Xavier. Merci, Monsieur le Président. Or something like that, thought Bond, as he pushed his way through the swing doors of the salle privée and nodded to the bored man in evening clothes, whose job it is to bar your entry and your exit with the electric foot switch, which can lock the doors at any hint of trouble. And the casino committee would balance its books and break up to its homes or cafes for lunch. As for robbing the case, in which Bond himself was not personally concerned, but only interested, he reflected that it would take ten good men, that they would certainly have to kill one or two employees, and that anyway you probably couldn't find ten non-squeal killers in France, or in any other country, for the matter of that. As he gave a thousand francs to Vestier, he walked down the steps of the casino. Bond made up his mind that Le Chiffre would in no circumstances try to rob the case, and he put the contingency out of his mind. Instead, he explored his present physical sensation. He felt the dry, uncomfortable gravel under his evening shoes, the bad, harsh taste in his mouth, and the slight sweat under his arms. He could feel his eyes filling their sockets. The front of his face, his nose and antrum were congested. He breathed the sweet night air deeply and focused his senses and wits. He wanted to know if anyone had searched his room since he had left it before dinner. So, James Bond, um, there being a sort of, a, obviously, a, a dab hand at the casino and being aware of his surroundings. Um, what uh, I thought was interesting was Ian Fleming 
was a bit of a failure to start with. Bless him. No, it, it was extraordinary. I, mean, I was doing some um, some reading up. I, I was really quite surprised because you just get this sort of urbane man, and you see him in later life, very elegantly dressed with his cigarette in a holder. And you think, wow, this this is this is the epitome of success. He must have had it from day one, you know, from I birth. Know. So there's hope for us all. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so to start off with, um, obviously, very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the Fleming banking um, empire, uh, mm-hmm. based in Nettlebed, um, and um, I think one of the secrets of Bond's success is that he was written with this strong element of wish fulfilment, um, mm-hmm. someone you'd really like to be. So I think it was because of possibly his his failings that sort of channeled all this sort of hope into uh, the character of 007. So poor Ian, he wasn't very academic. He did go to Eton, but he uh, wasn't very academic there. And he went into the army division, the army uh, form and went to Sandhurst but unfortunately he had to pull out of Sandhurst because he got gonorrhea Oops. I mean that was an extraordinary thing wasn't it that you you got that and then that was it you, you that was you finished out yes yeah, yeah absolutely he then went uh, decided he'd go into the foreign office and took the foreign office exams and he failed then he went into the family business of course and he tried his hand at banking and being a stockbroker and he wasn't particularly good uh, at either of those either mm. so I'm, I'm just going to say and the thing called on top of it as well that probably added the pressure because I don't think his mother was a very pleasant woman ah. and I think that because I think she was you know she, she just saw him as not a failure I think she told him as a young man particularly oh, with the with the Sandhurst thing that he was a failure and look at your father who was a hero and look at this you're a disappointment in the family and even when he was trying to get a job um I think in 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 um in journalism, and he was using, and she, she sort of took the letter away and tore it up. And, and I don't think she was a pleasant woman. Oh dear! So, so probably added on top of that, you know, this you know sense of that he hadn't achieved yeah. or couldn't achieve anything. Yes, and I suppose added on top of that, um, his elder brother was who was a glittering success. Yeah, an irritating yeah. success. Would yes. you hate that as an elder brother? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Peter was a real adventurer. He was first of all he was strong academically so you've got a first at Oxford in English Uh, but what I loved is that he applied to an advert in the times that were looking for someone to join an uh, an expedition into into central Brazil right well first of all fancy putting an advert in saying wanted (laughs) sits back yes (laughs) <laughs> so there was this poor gentleman called Colonel Percy Fawcett who'd gone over into uh, central Brazil to find the famous kingdom of Zed and had gone missing. So this uh, adventurer had decided to put together a team to try and find um, Colonel Fawcett. Unfortunately, that wasn't he wasn't found. But when Peter Fleming got home, he wrote a book about the whole experience called The Brazilian Adventure. And it's still in print today. So that's Gosh. brilliant. And Peter became an accomplished author and journalist in his own right, writing many successful uh, books. He had a film star wife, uh, Celia mm-hmm. Johnson, of course. Oh, yes, yes. Who had also in turn um, a famous son-in-law. Ah, and who was that? Yes. Simon Williams. Ah, there you are. And uh, Peter uh, was was a real commando during the war, mm-hmm. uh, before retiring to Nettlebed as the eldest son to to become uh, a squire. Right. Don't quite know what a squire does, uh, mm, but it sounds yes, rather charming. Sure. Yes. 
I think I think it, I think it is that you have lots of money in a big house yeah, and people do doff your cap. I yeah. could do that. Anyway, yes. many of the Bond stories and background details have come from Ian Fleming's work as uh, a member of the Naval Intelligence Division, Division during World War Two. But it's um, Ian Fleming organised commando raids, whilst it was his brother Peter who actually performed them. Mm. But I think I think in fairness to to um, Ian Fleming, I think that also because he was actually I think he excelled in that role in naval intelligence, and I think that there was one um, operation when he when the Enigma machine was uh, going to be um, brought over, and he wanted to lead the team, but his his immediate um, commander said, "No, you're far too valuable to us here." admiralty um yes. so he was stopped going so so he you know he he was excelling uh, you know in planning and coming up with great ideas um for this intelligence work in army intelligence in, in naval intelligence yeah uh, yes we mustn't we mustn't say that he was a failure because obviously he created one of the most iconic characters yes in well all i don't think we're, i don't think we're saying he's fair i think he bless his heart i think he thought he might have been and yes. you know with circumstances and and the family pressure but no I mean, yeah. he was a very bright man, and you don't have to have um, a fancy degree to, to to be bright and intelligent, do you? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And what was a real benefit, actually, of him not being particularly successful as a as a businessman, is that in the job that he did get, he was able to take three months off during the uh, as a holiday, and he swan off to Jamaica. And he'd sit and he'd decided to write books, which we mm. are eternally grateful for. Yeah. So yes. I was sort of wondering what the literary influences could be for 007. And I immediately went to Richard Hannay, who's the character from the 39 mm. Steps yes. course by John Buchan. Now, yes. John Buchan wrote five books uh, with the Richard Hannay character. And Hannay, of course, is an independent adventurer. Mm. He starts off in the uh, South African veld and he comes over to London. And in the 39 steps, he just hates being in London. He just finds it so boring until obviously a woman dies in his flat that he doesn't mm. know. And the whole adventure begins. And um, he is sort of coming up against criminal gangs with anarchist tendencies. And the government is sort of there in the background but not being particularly supportive and Buchan called these um, his books shockers which I thought was right. a great phrase and a shocker is um, I suppose uh, seen as an adventure where the events in the story are unlikely and the reader is only just able to believe that they really happened now I think that's definitely a Bond theme there yes yes I, I think yes yeah I can see that yes I'd agree and I thought Bulldog Drummond was mm -hmm. another um, similar character. He was created by a guy called H.C. McNeil, but you might know him under the pseudonym Sapper. So Bulldog ah, yes. Drummond by Sapper is the, is the book yes. to look out for. And uh, Bulldog, if I can use his, uh, his first name, <laughs> was a First World War veteran who, again, fed up with his sedate lifestyle after coming out of the army. He advertises looking for excitement. It was obviously a thing in those days to advertise. Mm, exactly, exactly. And um, he becomes a gentleman adventurer. So his exploits are against this arch villain, Carl Peterson, um, who's a master of disguise and uses several aliases. And uh, Bulldog 
Drummond's world is that of gentlemen's clubs of St. James's Square, very similar to um, uh, Richard Hannay. Mm-hmm. Um, his preferred drink is beer, but he enjoys drinking martinis and he's very knowledgeable about wine. And he owns both a Rolls Royce and a Bentley. So we can sort of see bits of Bond being identified there. Martinis. Well, well exactly, because um, certainly the martinis, also the clubs, yes. um, particularly um, the ambassadors, which is the gambling club, but also, which is quite important to, to point out, is that before Bond was given his Aston Martin, and he drove a Rolls Royce. Ah, there you are. Mm-hmm. There yes. You are. So, so almost, almost Bulldog is, you know, the embryonic James. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Well, there's lots of things. Because the thing mm. as an author, what you do do is you are inspired mm. by books that, uh, that come before you. And to be honest, where and, and and Ian Fleming um, ad, admits it to himself. I mean, um, he he would the, the names of his characters apart from. I mean, he would pick people he knew and just change them slightly. So you know, this is this is an extension of the theme. Yes, as in yeah. uh, it's a gold goldfinger. Yes, uh, was the architect wasn't uh, it? Erno Goldfinger? Yes, um, uh, exactly. Um, was actually, uh, we pass the most delightful um, Goldfinger designed boathouse on the Thames oh, in right. Cookham. Um, ah, lovely. W- well, you say it's lovely. I oh. think the house owners don't appreciate it, oh. uh, but it really ought to be listed because it's absolutely beautiful. Oh, it's a shame. Um, yeah. But uh, I understand that Ian Fleming um, hated his modernistic approach. Yes, because I think I think um, Goldfinger's house in Hampstead was just a few houses down from where Fleming lived. Yes, and I think that was that was it. So I think they say this was his revenge on Goldfinger. But <laughs> but again, I mean the other things which are, you know the other things. Anyway. I'm, I'm we digress. You. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, we're digressing. Yeah, yeah, we're digressing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, we think that. So I, I believe that those are the literary influences for mm. Fleming. So I'll be talking later about those books who've influenced, uh, who've embraced rather the Fleming effect and actually written James Bond uh, books of their own. But beforehand, Julian, what are your favourite Bond books? Well, the, the, the two I've got, um, uh, the first is um, From Russia With Love, which was published by Jonathan Cape in 1957. Now, that comes uh, out often pardon? as every, as most people's favourite, actually. Pardon? It comes out as most people's favourite. Yeah. Well, I think in, in, in partly, um, I mean, it was the fifth novel in, in, in the canon, um, and... Um, uh, the, uh, a very interesting point, but I think it was partly because of the exotic location, which was printed in Istanbul. But a really interesting piece of it uh, uh, about this is that um, uh, Ian Fleming thought that this was going to be Bond's last assignment, um, because the truth of the matter is that he was actually getting quite fed up of him. Yes. And he confided to his friend, Raymond Chandler, that I am getting fed up with Bond and it has been rather difficult to make him, uh, to get him through his tawdry tricks. And so much so that, that Fleming uh, rewrote the ending in 1956 and left it that he could do, do away with Bond if he wished. Oh, I didn't um, know um, that. Yes, but I won't spoil it, but it all has to do with what Rosa Klebb managed to do with the secret knife hidden in a shoe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now, fortunately for us, Ian Fleming just, um, 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 relented and uh, went on to write a further 10 uh, Bond novels. 
after uh, From Russia With Love. But as, as I've mentioned, the, the setting from Russia With Love is Istanbul, which I think is one of the reasons why um, it, it, it's a favourite, because it was filmed um, in the nine, in the early 1960s, very atmospheric. Mm. And of course, it, it exudes all the mystery and, and exoticism. Uh, and it's where the Soviet counterintelligence agency, Smirsch, is plotting a spectacular act of terrorism. Now, critical to the plot, though he doesn't know it, is that a British um, Secret Service agent, James Bond, um, who has caused Smirsch no end of headaches, um, having successfully got rid of three Smirsch agents, the chief, who we've just heard about, mm-hmm. Hugo Drax and Mr. Big. And for this, the Soviet state has declared Bond an enemy and issued a death warrant against him. Now, Bond's assassination is to be carried out by Donovan Red Grant, a British army deserter and a Smirsch uh, hitman. Now, Bond's death um, is, preci- is going to precipitate a major sex scandal, which Smirsch will ensure will run for months around the world's press, bringing ruin on Bond's reputation and that of MI6. Now, the plot is masterminded by Colonel Rosa Klebb and um, Smirsch's chess-playing master planner, Kronstein. Now, the plot's simple enough. Smirsch is going to recruit the attractive young cipher clerk, uh, Corporal Tatiana Romanova, who works at the Soviet consulate in Istanbul, and she will pretend to defect, claiming to have fallen in love with Bond after seeing a photograph of him. Um, As an added incentive, Romanova is to bring with her the much sought-after Spectre decoding machine. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Romanova, she knows nothing of this at all. She thinks she's doing a patriotic thing for for the state. The bait's set. MI6 receives the offer of detection. And though a little bit of uh, unsure about the motives, they're so greedy about wanting the uh, the chance of getting the Spectre uh, machine um, that Bond is sent off by M to retrieve it. So um, Bond, once he's in Istanbul, um, contacts Kevin Bay, who is the head of the British service in Istanbul, and they get on very well. And they waste no time in arranging to meet Romanova uh, and to plan their journey out of Turkey. Uh, so both Bond, um, Karim, um, believe Romanova's story, and all of three of them, along with the with the, the decoder machine, board the Orient Express bound for Paris. Now, when on board, Kerim spots there are three MGB agents, Russian agents, travelling incognito, and he manages, uh, with bribery and trickery, to get two of them thrown off the train. Um, however, Kerim is found later dead in the compa- his compartment, along with the third agent, which he, Kerim, has managed to kill before dying himself. Which I think is in this uh, that, that, I, that that bit I find quite sad because Kevin Bay is, is actually a very very charming and um, flamboyant character and, and and I was very sad you know to read that he comes to grief. So how, However, how the trick. Diff- oh, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say how different is the film from the uh, from the book? Ah. Well, it, I mean, it 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 it, it is um, it is a little bit different, mostly in toward the end um, with, uh, with 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 how things turn out. Um, so, but interestingly, my next book, which is Goldfinger, oh, yeah. that is quite different in, in many ways from, from the film. Whereas, I, whereas this one, because I think it was fairly early on, I think it was a little bit more um, to the film. Yes. Uh, to, to the story rather yeah um but running up until now it it, it it's it, it it's pretty pretty good um uh and it's running almost exactly with the novel yeah uh, the yeah. film runs exactly to the yeah. novel yeah 
Um, anyway, as the journey continues, the train pulls into Trieste and the Captain Nash um, introduces himself to Bond um, as a fellow MI6 agent. Bond doesn't think much about it. He thinks that uh, Nash is uh, providing additional protection for the journey. But Romanova, she's a little bit unsure about this, but Bond said, no, 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 it's perfectly all right. He's an MI6 agent. Anyway, they go to the dining car and they have dinner and uh, Nash manages to drug Romanova's drink and, and she goes off to bed, you know, quite the woozy, woozy. So she goes through rest yeah because um uh, and and later um and nash goes to bond's compartment and wakes him up at gunpoint and reveals um himself as the assassin uh, but he makes a fatal mistake at that point instead of shooting bond immediately he, he begins to tell bond about the smirsher's plan which is to shoot them both and he's going to then throw um romanova's body off the train he's going to plant um, a steamy film in her luggage, which is going to be the sex scandal, which I referred to before. Uh, and that was that was it. I um, want to anyway. know why they don't just shoot Bond. <laughs> I know, I mean, it's always a give him opportunity. We know just he's going to get off. Exactly, because I was just about to say, whilst, whilst um, uh, uh, Nash is yattering away there, Bond busily so partly pulls out his cigarette case, which is metal, puts it in between the covers of his book and holds it up against his heart. So Nash goes to shoot him, of course. <laughs> it goes into the book. Bond then drops down onto the compartment floor. Nash thinks his job's all done, and as he's stepping over, Bond leaps up and, of course, manages to kill Nash. Of course, of course. he does. Yes, exactly. But we know that Nash, of course, is um, what's his name, Red Thingy Bob, um, uh, the the uh, army deserter. Um, so it's Grant, who, of course, is who's Nash. Anyway, Bond and Romanova managed to get to Paris, where Bond hands her over and the Spectre um, machine to his superiors, uh, and and that's that. And anyway, and then he bumps into Rosa Claire. Well, not exactly. I mean, she she's been arrested, but manages to escape. Um, and well at the risk of, I'm not going to uh, spoil the ending, you're just going to have to read the book because yes, there absolutely. is a different ending to the book. Um, but the hint was, as I said, what Ian Fleming had decided to do at the beginning of the book, leaving this open ending. So you must read the book. Yes. It, is quite, it is quite different from the film. Yes, that's great. So I do think that's yeah. interesting that five, that about five books was, was sort of like... Yes, exactly. Number. And then, but then managed to re- go on for 10 more. And then after that, of course, all these other films like Goldeneye and the other ones, of course, these are these are other scripts that have been written. These were not yes, written by, yeah. by, by uh, Ian Fleming. And of course, Sherlock Holmes, um, Conan, Conan Doyle got bored of writing about Sherlock Holmes as well. Well, and, exactly. And I in mean, fact, he killed him off. Yes, as he got thrown over the Reichenbach Falls. And then the outrage um, in the Strand magazine, the Regions of Strand magazine, caused him to bring him back, exactly. you know, fish him out of the ravine yeah. and then dust him down or dry him off. And off he went again, which is must, fantastic. It must be a real problem for yeah. successful authors where yeah. you, you obviously yeah. want a successful book, but you're a bit bored of writing that <laughs> exactly. particular character. Because probably, but I would have thought by five books, um, Ian Fleming would have seen the money coming in because they'd already, um, you know, actually, only probably was early early 60s when they started filming them. Yes. Um, though, in fact, actually, Dr. No, funnily enough, which is further down in the canon, I think that's nine, um, eight or nine in, in, yeah. in, in, in book, was actually the fir- first film made. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. But um, would you like to hear a little bit about Goldfinger? Oh, just a little bit, yeah, go okay. on. OK. Well, um, Goldfinger, this was the, the, the seventh in the Bond uh, books, and this on opens in Miami, where James Bond finds himself en route to London after um, closing a Mexican heroin um, uh, smuggling ring. Uh, and he meets an American businessman, um, uh, 
Junius Dupont, who in fact he'd actually met um, in Casino Royale because he played, he gambled with them. And uh, the businessman complains uh, to Bond that he's he's been playing canasta with another guest um, uh, who's been cheating. And uh, anyway, so Bond uh, goes and uh, sorts him out. Um, uh, uh, he actually manages to persuade him to pay the money back. That seems to be the end of it. Uh, Bond goes back home, but um, he... He then uh, goes to have a meeting with M and uh, finds out that um, Oric Goldfinger, who is who is the character, yeah. is, is is suspected of smuggling an awful lot of um, gold out of the UK, and they must find out how he's how he's doing it. Uh-huh. Um, and it's all to do with um, smelting of gold and. Um, uh, making panels and putting it in his his, his Rolls Royce and transporting it across to the continent. Um, that sounds quite a good idea, actually. That's that's a plan, isn't it? Well, it is a good, it is a plan, but this uh, but this one, and I think a lot of people know quite a lot about uh, about the book from um, from the film. But this is one of the classic books that. Um, the film diverges from the book right. in many, many ways. Because, for example, Odd Job doesn't, uh, he does die, but not by being electrocuted um, by his hat. Yes. Um, Goldfinger also um, uh, doesn't die uh, in the way it's described out of the plane, but he does die, and it's very different from the way it is. Uh, and it's how Bond gets home. Um, and also, and I have to be really sorry for all of those men out there who were lusting after Pussy Galore oh. on a black man. She is lesbian. Uh, oh, no. Well, yes. That is yes. a male and, fantasy, though, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And Tilly Masterson, who's the sister of Jill, who has been found dead, who's the assistant to um, Goldfinger, was found dead, covered in gold paint. And Jill, who uh, wanted to uh, enact revenge and, and shoot um uh, Goldfinger. She's also um, lesbian, and she thought toward the the end of the book she was going to be protected by um, Pussy Galore. But well, unfortunately, that doesn't happen either. Well, so a, it's a really a interesting one. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really good, um, and it's so so different. Uh, the endings are different. The twists are different. Oh, and also, I must tell you, which my favourite scene in the film is when uh, when Bond says to Goldfinger, uh, "Do you expect me to talk?" And Goldfinger says, "No, Mister Bond, I expect you to." die well in the film <laughs> yes. it's actually it's not a laser it's it's even worse oh. it's actually a circular saw yes <laughs> yes so That's going anyway. up the table between his um exactly yes his his okay. um yes yes yeah, wherewithal okay so it's, it's interesting isn't it that ian fleming actually wrote the books as literary as literary thrillers he, he what they were well written Yes, no, um, I, they, they were, I, uh, and and when you when you do read them, they 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 are very well plotted, very yeah. well written. Um, it's interesting and... that his um, his first book, Casino Royale, um, it was submitted to Jonathan Cape and actually was rejected. Right. Yes. And uh-huh. uh, Peter Fleming, his brother, yeah. um, was also with Jonathan Cape and suggested that they needed to rethink again. And I'm sure Jonathan Cape were very pleased that they did. That they did. But that is interesting because obviously his brother, who is an accomplished and respected author, was obviously also saw merit in his younger yes, brother's work. Absolutely. Very much like um, um, Lawrence Durrell also saw that of Gerald Durrell and yeah. was very supportive. So that yeah. was very interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and and thank goodness, because yes, it could have gone on the slush pile yeah. and that would be it. And yeah. we might not have had James um, at all. So... How many James Bond books are there? I think there's 14, is that right? Uh, 
Uh, no, there's um, what did I say? This one was the uh, I think there's fifteen. Um, fifteen. No, no, seventeen. Because 17. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. No, I beg your pardon. Um, 15, yes, you're right. Fifteen in total. Right. Because so yeah. what's interesting is being a further twenty-four novels. Yes. That have been added to the Bond experience uh, by six different authors. D- different authors. And also yeah. interesting that um, the film Goldeneye and the script Goldeneye actually took the name of, of um, Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica. Yes, which I've been yeah. to and is... Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah, really, really gorgeous. So I won't rattle through all of the 24 books, but I no. just wanted to pick out three. And first of all, Kingsley Amos wrote um, ah, yes. a James Bond book and he was writing under the pseudonym Robert Markham and the book was Colonel Sun and that was the very first non-Fleming book written um, based in Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, literary star William Boyd also right. wrote a novel um, based on Nigeria's Biafran War, set in the 1960s. Mm. And uh, Boyd's got a brilliant villain, uh, a mercenary called Cobus Breed, who treats his victims like fish, hooking them through the jaws and hanging them in trees. It's so suitably vile, I think. Yes. And uh, finally, Sebastian Falks, uh, who Ah. is my favourite Bond recreator, I think. Mm. And um, he believed that, the reason why his book was successful was that he stayed true to three of um, Ian Fleming's sort of enduring elements for a Bond book. And they were the sense of jeopardy uh, for this sort of solitary hero, mm-hmm. uh, a playfulness in the narrative details and a crisp journalistic style that doesn't date. And I think looking at the Ian Fleming books, those do apply, don't they? Mm. Um, and his book... Devil May Care was written to honour the centenary of Fleming's books. And, of course, Bond just will carry on. And, of course, there's been a young Bond series as well, uh, written by Charlie Hickson. Right. Yes, of course, yes. When Bond was at school. Yep. Which which I uh, mentioned um, a few programmes back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, And he decided he just wanted to do the five, just like Ian Fleming. Right. But he... Kept to his knitting and decided that was it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and finally, I want to say that the book to look out for on a non-Bond theme is Sarah Hall's first novel in six years, Burned Coat, which is published by Faber. So this has gained the most reviews in the press over the past week. It's been reviewed by the Bookseller, the Times, the Guardian, the Scotsman, the Telegraph, the Independent, the Financial Times. So that all um, suggests it's highly valued um, by the reviewers. It does indeed. It does indeed. It's a tale of sex and death told by a sculptor, Edith whose heady liaison with a Turkish restaurateur meets a fork in the road with the advent of a deadly virus that liquefies victims from the inside. I think a novel inspired by the pandemic. Mm, Absolutely. And you're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley and beyond and in Algeria. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have a favourite author you want to tell us about, any book that you're really keen on, just uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me at julian at river.radio. We'd love to hear from you. So from, from Heather and Julian, it's a very big thank you for listening. And thanks also to Mike Burton and to Julian for their readings and to Tilly for her young adult fiction addiction. 
books that we've been recommending today are The Brilliant Death by A.R. Capetta. Um, Sugar by Bernice L. McFadden, which is published by Vintage Classics. A Beautiful Spy by Rachel Hoare, Simon Schuster. Uh, C.J. Tudor, The Burning Girls, published by Penguin. Simon Scarrow, Blackout, published by Headline. Uh, the Last a House on Needless Street, Profile, um, by Catriona Ward. Jane Harper's The Survivors, published by Little Brown. Lady Carnarvon, Seasons at Highclere, published by Century. The Ultimate Dennis and Nasher Comic Collection, published by Harper and Collins. <laughs> Simon Winder, The Man Who Saved Britain, by Picador. The Brazilian Adventure, by Peter Fleming. Uh, John Buchan, The 39 Steps, and this is still available in the Penguin Classics. Uh, Bulldog Drummond by Sapper. Casino Royale, Goldfinger and Russia with Love by Ian Fleming, Penguin Books. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us, then do download the programme on the Listen Again feature directly from our website, river.radio. Or you can find us on the turning pages on River Radio podcast, available from Apple Podcasts. And stay tuned on River Radio is coming up at one o'clock this afternoon. We have Let's Talk Business. See you next week. Bye. So I wanna be a paperback writer Paperback writer It's a dirty story of a dirty man And his clinging wife doesn't understand The son is working for the daily man It's a steady job but he wants to be a paperback writer Paperback writer Paperback writer